heart. Let's, uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together to worship you. And Lord, to once again begin the, uh, the Sunday school lessons. And uh, Lord, I just pray that, that you would bless the time that we have, that uh, we would be able to uh, think clearly about issues, hopefully learn some things. And God, just that it would uh, just increase our our reverence for you, our knowledge of you, um, and Lord, that it would uh, just aid in our, our worship, aid in uh, as we live our lives, and God, just that we would be able to give you all glory through these things. We pray in Christ's name. All right, well, just, just a little introduction on the projector. This is kind of an experiment, so... If you guys can't see well enough to like write notes and stuff like that, we can turn the lights back on. Um, it's pretty washed out if you don't do it, and we don't actually need this. This is kind of like lesson one. I'm gonna see what I can get away with, um, so that like in further lessons it'll be really helpful if I can do this. But I want to see what we can do. So if you can't actually see that, it's not gonna it's not gonna ruin the lesson. So um, not not this week anyway. So. Um, so today we're going to start um, a new study on how we got the Bible. Um, Christianity is based on a book. Um, that book tells us about God. Uh, it tells us about ourselves. It convinces us that we owe our whole allegiance to God, but that we have rebelled against him. Uh, it tells us how God came in the person of the Son to live a life of obedience and die a substitutionary death on behalf of all who repent of their sins and trust wholly in God's mercy. Uh, it teaches us how we are to worship God and how we ought to live in this world. Uh, it teaches us about unseen things in the spiritual world, about lofty concepts that challenge our understanding and move us to awe and wonder. Uh, it reveals the depths of our own depravity and shatters our feeble justifications. Um, such powers cannot be ascribed to an ordinary book. Uh, its source must be God. And that is what we, as Christians, confess, right? Uh, the Bible is the word of God, given by inspiration of God, to be the rule of faith and life. It is unlike any other book that's ever been written passage that I'm sure all of you are very familiar with, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But how did this book come to us? Um, how is it uh, that this sack of paper or uh, stack of paper and ink or pixels on a screen, just depending on how you're looking at it. Uh, how is it that that came from the mind of God into your hands? Uh, we're going to be looking at this question from two different angles. Um, first, there is the historical perspective. Um, that involves uh, the copying of manuscripts, uh, compiling of various books of the Bible together, uh, and translating into languages that people can understand. So that's going to be kind of the first part of our study. Um, and then secondly is the theological perspective. And that is going to involve the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy. Um, so that's basically the, the overview of what we're going to be studying this semester for Sunday School. Um, now I know that many of you have looked into these things before. Um, but hopefully, uh, if you get nothing else out of this, uh, you will um, at least consider the, the review, it to be a helpful review. Um, and I, I'm very uh, thankful that many Christians are well informed uh, about how we got the Bible. Uh, but many Christians are not. You might ask, I mean, is it really, it's really a problem if you don't know? Um, isn't it enough that I just accept that it's the Word of God? Do I really need to learn the details about how we got the Bible? Um, in response, I would say that it certainly isn't necessary for your salvation that you know uh, how the Bible came to us. Um, 
but it is of great benefit as you seek to live a life in accordance with God's word. Um, and I want to I want to give you some specific examples. We're going to spend a bit of time on that, just like why this is important, what benefits we can gain from understanding this. Um, but um, first, I just want to like pause for a second and point out that I like to have an interactive class. I know I'm just kind of like talking right now, but um, feel free to like jump in, raise your hand, or if I don't see you, just start talking, whatever. Um, ask questions, make comments. Um, I will remind people if you haven't heard before, I'm a little hard of hearing, so please like uh, speak up when you're when you're addressing me. Um, is there any like questions or or comments uh, before we start diving into some meat here? Everybody's everybody's on the same page. All right, so let's look at some let's look at some benefits. Of this study that we're gonna we're gonna cover here. Um, number one, first off, it aids in interpreting the Bible. Um, so I would say that our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration, in particular, is going to aid us in our interpretation interpretation of the Bible. Um, what does it mean that the scriptures are inspired? Um, there have been those who have placed priority on the words of Jesus in the Gospels over the words of Paul in his letters. I imagine some of you have encountered that before. It's like you look at the, the red letters, right? It's like, oh, this, this Jesus said this. This is more important. Paul, I'm not too sure about him. Um, you know, it, it makes a certain amount of sense, right? I mean, Jesus was God. Paul, he's just a man, right? Um but a careful examination of what Jesus himself teaches about the divine origin of the scriptures will correct that error. Um, so we will see that all of the Bible is the word of God. Um, or perhaps someone is tempted to think that the Bible can inform us on spiritual matters, but that we needn't believe everything it says concerning history or the functioning of the physical world. Again, I'm sure that Many of you have encountered that type of attitude. Um, again, when we consider the words of Jesus, uh, we can see um, that this is not the, the proper way to view the word of God. He viewed it as speaking truth in everything that it said, regardless of whether it was on spiritual issues of salvation or whether it was talking about history or the functioning of the world. Um, another thing, um, what if I'm studying a passage and I see uh, a word that I don't know the meaning of it? What should I do at that point? I'll just throw this out for you. What, what should I do if I see a word, um, I'm reading the Bible, I see a word, and I don't know what the meaning of it is. What should I do there? Any thoughts? Well, yeah. I would, I would say it used to be looking up in a dictionary. Now it's just look Google. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look it up. Right. Um, in dictionary or Google or or whatever search engine you prefer. Um, is it enough to just like look at what the English word means? No. Oftentimes it's best to go back to either the Hebrew, Greek, mm -hmm. and then find out the context that that word was used in other places. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's where it's very important that we understand that the Bible was not written in English. English didn't even exist when the Bible was written. Um, so we have to understand that the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. If we really want to interpret it correctly, it's important that we consider, well, what does that Greek word mean? What does that Hebrew word mean? Uh, now, you can, you can overdo that with if you don't really know what you're doing and assume that you can figure out a foreign language. Uh, with just a tiny bit of knowledge, so that, I mean, that can be dangerous. But still, you, you want to understand that it's, if you look at the, the English word and you look it up in a dictionary, don't assume that that just exhaustively tells you what's going on in the Greek or in the Hebrew, because that's what was inspired, that was the, the original languages. So as we, as we continue this discussion, it's, those are the types of things um, that we're going to hopefully 
shore up, I mean, again, probably most of you know this stuff, and maybe this will all just be review, and that'll be great if you're already that well-informed. Um, but those are some things that are going to help with interpreting the Bible. The second one is uh, a knowledge of how we got the Bible can be invaluable as we share the gospel with those who don't know Christ. Um, at least in my own experience, uh, one of the most common objections that are raised when you try to speak to someone about your faith is some form of an attack on the authority of the Bible. Um, any the rest of you experience that? It seems to me that's the biggest one. Um, it's uh, one way or another, somebody's going to attack the authority of the Bible. It might be that the Bible is uh, just a collection of the writings of men. Uh, they might say the Bible contains uh, many errors and contradictions. Um, they might say that the books of the Bible uh, were chosen by people who wanted to distort the teaching of Jesus. Um, so often you have people that will that will address that and say, oh, well, you don't even know what books should be in the Bible. And there was just, you know, certain men at a certain time that decided that. Um, and you get all sorts of stories about that. Um, might be that translations have hidden the true meaning. Um, and that you can't really know when you're just reading your English Bible. Um, a solid grasp on how we got the Bible will prepare you to answer these objections and to show that there are no good grounds for rejecting the authority of the Bible. Um, if you're prepared with these things, if you know these things, um, then when you are talking to somebody, you're sharing the gospel with them, and they raise these objections, you're going to know how to answer them. Now, it is important to, to understand that the person you're talking to might still just completely reject the authority of the Bible. Just because you have the answers isn't a guarantee that they're going to accept everything that you have to say. Uh, but one thing that it does do is that it makes it so that um, the person in there objecting, they can't just smugly think to themselves, well, I'm using evidence, I'm using reason, I, you know, this dumb Christian, he's just blindly accepting the, the book that he got handed is the word of God and hasn't even considered things. Um, he's going to be forced to the position that, yeah, I'm, I'm not really saying I reject the Bible because I've really thought this through and I have all the evidence. I'm really saying I reject the Bible because I don't want to be subject to what God tells me to do. I don't want to be subject to the law of God. And that can be a powerful thing uh, when you're witnessing to somebody uh, something that the Holy Spirit can use to convict them of their sin. Um, so it's a, it's a very uh, valuable thing that we can gain from this study. Anybody have any thoughts or questions about that? Ben, are you? I think it's also kind of on the flip side good for the believer, too. Mm-hmm. I think like they're not just... That's point number three. <laughs> so that's what I get when I ask questions, you know. Like, yeah, you just jump ahead. No, but no, that that is a good point. Um, any thoughts before we move on to that excellent point that Ben just raised? All right. So point number three: strength is our faith. Um, so, did you have anything in particular you wanted to well, say about that? I specifically, so. If you're trying to defend mm-hmm. faith, trying to defend the, the inerrancy of the authority of Scripture, um, and you don't have a lot of answers, it's not only as far as it can strengthen our faith, but it also just it gives us it's it's kind of the strengthening. Uh, I can't think of the wrong In the eyes of the world. Um, it's, it's showing that we do have something to stand on, kind of like what you were saying, mm-hmm. but it also shows us that we have something to stand on. Yeah, yeah. kind of saying the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but that's, could, that's good. Could I add something to that? Because yeah. I was thinking about that too. You know, if you think about faith, 
faith has an object. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have faith in something. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, like in this area, Christians haven't walked through this. I mm-hmm. mean, we may know some of these things, mm-hmm. but we've not really sort of systematized it and okay. thought about it. So, you know, we really have faith in the Bible as it is mm-hmm. because somebody told us to have faith. Sure. So it is it isn't really you know so much in the evidence we've not maybe looked at the evidence right so by looking at that evidence it does even strengthen what you already know is true you're like oh now i understand the reasons mm-hmm. so i think it really is important to, yeah. to go through this so yeah i hadn't I really thought about that because probably a lot of people it's like you've heard people like give a little lecture on like you know how we can trust the bible the reliability of of its transmission and all that kind of stuff, but you never actually like just really dug in and like looked at examples. And you know, maybe this is kind of the same thing. Is like I'm just going to be giving you examples and stuff like that. So, uh, but maybe this will be an opportunity for you to, to dig in more yourself. But hopefully, this will be helpful um, in uh, as it was, has been said, kind of systematizing it and bringing it to uh, to where you have a deeper understanding of it. Um, so I. You know, and I expect that. I mean, you know, if, obviously, if we're if we're encountering an unbeliever, then sometimes they can raise questions that you know that really cause us to go, "Oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that." Uh, but just in general, um, I expect that that most, if not all, Christians have had moments when they've asked themselves the question: Is all of this really true? Uh, is God real? Uh, can I really trust the Bible? I mean, that's something that just like. Through various circumstances, through suffering you're going through, or just just you know things you encounter, whatever, um, Christians at various times have moments where they where they question it. That's I think that's very common. Um, and really, I mean, there are two approaches that I see in the church that um, that are recommended for that type of situation. And I think especially from some of the answers I've already gotten here, I, I think we're on the right side of this. Uh, but it's something that I do feel strongly about, so I wanna, I wanna bring it up. Um, that one of the responses is don't look at the evidence. Um, just have faith, um, just trust, don't worry about the evidence, just just believe. Um, and I mean, even it's like, it almost sounds like the, the sermon from last week where, you know, where Jairus is, is told, you know, you know, don't worry, just believe because they said that your daughter is dead. But um, I think that if we apply it to the situation where it's like, do we look at the evidence or not? I think we're misunderstanding what biblical faith is. And I think that, that my understanding fits perfectly with what Pastor Rick preached for us last week. Um, faith, biblically speaking, has more to do with trusting God to keep his promises than with believing things contrary to evidence. Um, one thing that I've seen is I've, I've, I've looked at um, like things that atheists have said, that they are absolutely adamant that the definition of faith is to believe what's contrary to the evidence. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I've had a conversation with somebody where I tried to explain to him that biblically that's not what faith was, and he just insisted that I was wrong. And it's like, I, in a sense, I couldn't even have a conversation with him because I couldn't even, I wasn't even allowed to define what Christian faith is. Um, and so I, I think that's a wrong view of faith that unfortunately is very popular in our day. Um, but I think faith, um, I think like when you when you look, um, a good example is, is Abraham. Abraham had faith that Sarah could conceive, not because he was ignoring the evidence, namely that both he and Sarah were too old to have children, but because he trusted that God would fulfill his promise to overcome what would, in the natural order of things, prevent what God had said. So Abraham's looking, he's looking at the evidence, and he's saying, look, I'm too old, Sarah's too old, this naturally can't happen. And God says, I'm going to do this. And Abraham, he believes. It's not because it's like, oh, well, I'm just going against the evidence. He's like, oh, what's the most reasonable thing to do? You've got the creator of the universe who can do anything he wants. And is he going to be frustrated by the, the fact that 
two people who are too old to have children in the natural way? No. He's going to fulfill his promise. Um, and I think that's a more biblical view of faith. Ben? Yeah, well, a couple of things with that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's not like he didn't have any evidence also that God was who he was and he couldn't do it. God gave Abraham signs. Mm-hmm. Um, like he had the whole thing with the birds and the fire and all that. Mm-hmm. He took him outside. He talked to him and, he, you know, it was within just a few generations of the Tower of Babel that the flood, all that had happened. Like there were things that God had done within mm-hmm. not too distant memory. He knew that God could do this. Yeah. Like you said, he knew he was the creator of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then also, kind of with going with the whole like, going in, there's no evidence there, right? Like I already said, there's evidence that God can do these things. But also, sometimes with faith, it's trusting in God even when when the evidence supports all that, the natural evidence supports all that. It's just trusting him either way. The natural evidence supports the promise of God and when it doesn't Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You might be in a situation where all the all the evidence is in favor of believing what God said. So yeah. uh, it's... To the atheist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's... it's, uh, it's but it's still, it's it's a matter of trust, and it's a matter of trusting that God is going to fulfill His promises. Um, so yeah, and when you think, I mean, that's a great example of just like Abraham had these things where God had demonstrated His faithfulness um, over and over again, and you just think of like what we have, where we have the entire Bible, where we have story after story after story of God um, being faithful to His promises. Um, and that should be a great encouragement to us to have faith. Um, but I think it's very dangerous if we start having an idea of faith where we don't look at the evidence. Um, one thing is that I that I see is that when you look at cults, um, that's something that is encouraged in cults is to avoid looking at the evidence. Just listen to our side of the story. Um, any, I mean, like if you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, they they do not want their people to be reading anything that wasn't published by their society, and they make the argument. It's like, well, maybe there's some good stuff in it, but like if you, you know, if you have a glass of water and you put a little bit of poison into it, do you want to drink the glass of water just because a lot of it's good for you? Um, you know, it's, no, there's poison in it, so you don't want to read anything out there that's tainted by those people who are opposed to us. And, you know, it, it's really just a manipulation technique because they don't want those people exposed to other viewpoints. Um, and I think that uh, really, if we want to be people of truth, um, then it's important that we expose ourselves to everything and the truth is going to win out there. Um, we, we, don't, we don't need to shelter ourselves from evidence because if the Bible is true, and I'm convinced that it is, Um, then the evidence is going to be there to support it. Now, will there be things that challenge our faith? Sure. Um, But I think ultimately, if you just keep looking at everything, you're going to come out on the right side. Um, Let's see, that was a great aside. Now, see if I can find where I was at in my notes here. Um, So, yeah, the, the other approach is to look at the evidence. Um, if it's true, the evidence will confirm our faith. Um, now, it must be granted uh, that those who oppose the truth are able to use the evidence to undermine our faith. Um, but they do this by presenting the evidence in a selective and misleading manner. Now, this is something you often see from opponents of the faith, people who are attempting to persuade people to not be Christians, you know, from whatever perspective, whether they're atheists or whether they're some other religion, um, you will see that they present things um, in a way where they're really just like, they're, they're only giving you a bit of the evidence, the stuff that really challenges what you believe and not really giving you the whole story. Um, and the more you're familiar with all the information, uh, the less that that's a problem. Um, often they're counting on Christians to not know the facts. And, I mean, frankly, a lot of times Christians don't know the facts. But they're counting on that 
in their presentations, and they want to make it sound like uh, church leaders are either ignorant of these things or they're trying to deceive people. Uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about is that when the, the Bible was copied over the centuries, people made mistakes when they were making copies. Um, now that, just as a preview, that does not at all destroy our ability to know what the Bible says. But a lot of Christians, maybe it's not so much today, but in the past, especially a lot of Christians just didn't know that. And then when the atheist comes along and says, well, look, people made mistakes when they were copying the Bible, then, I mean, that can just sound so scary to somebody who thinks that, well, it's, it's the word of God. How could there have ever been mistakes in copying it? Um, and they're counting on that. And they, they want you to think, well, gosh, my pastor just must not know anything if he, if he doesn't know about this because he never told me about this. Or, oh, well, maybe my pastor does know and he just doesn't want me to know because, you know, then I'll know that he's just, you know, making all this stuff up. Um, that's the way that they can make it sound. Um, but if Christians know the facts, these opponents of Christianity begin to sound a lot more like used car salesmen. You start listening to what they're saying and it's like, hmm, okay, you're saying that, but... I also know this other stuff, and you're not mentioning that. Um, why is that? Why are you Why are you only giving me some of the evidence? And the reason is because they want to sell you something. Uh, they don't want you to They don't want you to find out the condition of the car before you buy it. Um, so the spirit of truth is not afraid of evidence. Uh, it's the father of lies who's afraid of evidence. He works in half-truths and subtle deception. Any more thoughts or comments or questions before we move on to the fourth point here? Okay. Hopefully this is helpful stuff for you. Fourth one, motivation for praise. A knowledge of how we got the Bible should motivate us to praise God for his providential guidance of history, to preserve his word through the centuries. Now, as I've studied this topic over the years, I've encountered so many stories on this topic that there's no way that we could actually you know, talk about all these different stories because um, there's just so many. Um, you have um, things that, you know, that happen on both sides. Um, you have um, some people showing their hatred for the Word of God, deliberately destroying the Word of God, and just doing it systematically, sometimes as governments. Um, and just, in a sense, the danger that the Word of God is in. Um, others, just ignorance, carelessness, uh, would destroy copies of the Word of God. I mean, there's there's some of the stories that are just like just heart rendering. When it's like it, a manuscript of the of the Bible, you know, survives for centuries, and then somebody comes along and decides that it's good to use to help light a fire because uh, they just don't really know what they've got, you know. And it's and it's like, but you like you find out about it, and it's just too late, you know. It's it's gone. Um, but in the midst of all these dangers to the Word of God. Um, there are so many instances of, uh, of people who uh, preserved the Word of God, sometimes through their heroic efforts as they were hiding them from the authorities, um, shifting them around, you know, finding some way to get them to a safe place, uh, copying them, just making lots and lots of copies so that they would be preserved. Um, sometimes just odd chances in history. Um, where um, there's a there's a, a piece of a manuscript like the, just one example that pops into my head is that they discovered a piece of a manuscript that somebody had had cut up and they had used to kind of do the lining of a cover of a later book and so they were they were working on the on the cover of a book and they just needed little you know scraps of parchment and so they you know chopped up little pieces of a Bible and and stuck it in there, and you know, 
centuries later, somebody actually found that, and they were able to extract that and give us a little bit more manuscript evidence for the Bible. Um, just all sorts of ways that, like, um, that God has preserved His Word in ways that are just, just. I mean, the stories. Some of them are just amazing. That um, God has has uh, orchestrated history to get His Word down to us with just an incredible number of manuscripts. Um, and we're going to talk about that as we go. But um, all these things. Um, I think show the hand of God uh, and it should cause us to praise him for his work uh, that he has done so much uh, in so many odd ways to preserve his word through history any thoughts or questions about that alright so let's talk about some basic information basic information. Um, so, the Bible was not written all at one time by a single author, uh, nor was it written in one language and in one style. This is probably all information you guys all know, but I want to make sure we just cover it. Um, in its current form, the Bible consists of 66 books. Uh, throughout history, they've counted the, the books in different ways. So if you look at historical documents where they talk about these things, sometimes you can come up with different numbers than 66. And obviously, at certain points in history, not all of it had been written yet. Um, but in the in the way that we currently count the, the books of the Bible, there's 66 of them. Um, it's a little hard to tell exactly how long it took to write the whole Bible, but it's, it's well over a 1,000 years, um, maybe... 1500, 1600, maybe 2000. Just it's some of the books we just don't know exactly when they were written, so it's a little hard to get it exactly right. But but it's over a span of over a thousand years, um, and obviously not just one person did it. But there's approximately 40 human authors. Um, you have well-known people like Moses and David, and, um, Paul and um, the Apostle John. We also have less well-known characters. You have the, the sons of Korah. You have Asaph. These are people that we know we know next to nothing about biblically, but uh, the biblical authors just uh, span a, a wide variety of people um, over, again, over a very long time. Um, and the Bible was written in multiple literary styles. Um, you have um, poetry, you have history, uh, you have instructional letters, uh, you have prophecies written in highly symbolic language. Uh, I know we talked about a lot of the different genres when we talked about how to study the Bible. We did, was that last fall that we did that? I don't remember now, but at some point we've done a study on how to study the Bible. So, um, where we talked about the different genres of the Bible. Um, but just lots of different styles of writing in the Bible. Um, and the Bible was written Hebrew, Greek, um, and some Arabic. Um, but the primary languages of the Bible were, uh, were Greek, and, Greek and Hebrew. So... That's all basic stuff. I bet you all of you knew all that already. Any any thoughts or questions about that? It's all just some nice basic information about what what's the Bible. Now, I'm going to talk about um, the copying of the Bible. Well, not actually. No, we're talking. We're not going to talk about copying. Yet. We're going to talk about writing the Bible. Now, in the 21st century, we're accustomed to books being produced uh, with the aid of electronic devices. Uh, the Bible was written in an age when all writing had to be done by hand. Um, and it can be uh, very hard for us to imagine how difficult it was. Um, let's see how graphics look. Can you see that okay? No computers, you got to do it by hand. Um, 
And one thing I, I like here at this point is that I do get to use some props. So not just images, but props. Um, so you couldn't you couldn't just go down to the to the office supply store and pick up a ream of paper and a pack of ballpoint pens. It wasn't even I mean that you know if we were going to write something by hand, that's probably what we would do, right? Um, now there's some evidence that the Chinese had invented paper before the New Testament was written, uh, but it appears that paper was unknown in the geographical region where the Bible was first written. Uh, so it and it, at that time so. Um, I think it's like the 700s before really the paper came to that part of the world. Um, so, like, what did they what did they write on if they didn't have paper? I'm just curious. Does anybody know what they would have written on if they didn't have paper? Papyrus. Papyrus. Okay. Got papyrus. Anything else? Clay blocks. Okay, yep. So clay, clay tablets, something that they would use. Um, that's something that, that definitely wasn't the most convenient thing, but it was something that they would do. They would make tablets of clay, and they would just use a, a stylus, and they would write on them, and then they'd bake them so that they were more permanent. But obviously carrying around a book made of clay tablets would be, would be very difficult. Anything else? Vellum. Vellum. I'm sorry, I didn't, was there something else besides that? Animal skins. Yeah, animal skins, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Parchment, it's also called vellum. Uh, it's basically just stretched animal skins. Um, it also, I'm sorry? I was going to say, even before all of that, there was sort of the oral tradition. Sure, of, sure. Of passing that on before it was all written down. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is true. The, and people were were very good at memorizing back then. I mean, we're still pretty good at it. We just don't we don't practice it as much because we don't have to. Um, but uh, back back at a time when it was harder to uh, get writing materials and uh, harder to mass produce writing, then it was much more common for people to memorize things. And so the oral tradition worked very well. Um, but uh, you'd also have stone tablets. You even had wax tablets. Those were more like temporary where you could write on them and then just smooth them over. Um, and um, and papyrus was mentioned. Does anybody know what papyrus is? Plant. It's a plant. Um, let's see. We should have done this sooner now that I'm looking at my slides. Um, just to back up just briefly here. Here's just an example of Hebrew. Um, you can see uh, the Hebrew written there. And then I also have an example of Greek text. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about those. But this is what I wanted to get to right here. Um, so this is uh, papyrus and parchment here. And you can see um, just the, the papyrus plants. Uh, Growing there along the river, and then you also see the uh, the parchment, which is just the stretched animal skin. They would stretch it, and they would scrape it, and it would get dry, and it would finally be or it was sort of like paper. And papyrus, um, what they would do is they would take the stalks of these plants and they would cut them into these thin strips, and then they would lay them out where they would put some of them horizontally and some of them vertically. And then they would mash them together, um, and they would dry out. And the, basically, just the juice in there would glue them together. And the end result was something very much like paper. Now, has anybody here seen either papyrus or parchment in real life? OK, we've got a few people. OK. Um, well, I actually have both to pass around. Looks like people aren't spread out too much. so. Hopefully we can do this. But this, I always thought it was neat to actually get to see in real life what you have with uh, with papyrus here. And you can see, I don't know how well you can see it here, but you should be able to see the different directions there as the, the plants were set up vertically and horizontally and mashed together. So you wind up with papyrus. And then this is just parchment. This is actually goat skin. Uh, that's been stretched and dried, and so I have those. So, so just start wherever. 
pass them around. That way you can kind of see what they're like. Always found that to be uh, an interesting thing to actually get to see. Because you read about these things, and I know when I first read about them, I was... I was like, wow, that you know, that sounds neat. It's like, what does that actually look like, you know? But um, I know, like, when I got the the parchment, I was particularly surprised at how stiff it was. Um, that it's, you know, it's. I don't know, maybe if you put them all together in a book and you know use it a lot, it you know it, it flexes a little bit more. But it's it's pretty stiff stuff. Um, but that's what they would have been uh, writing on. Now, what did they write with? Um, well, obviously, they didn't have ballpoint pens. But they did have pens and ink, um, just uh, just like I mean, sort of like what we use. And you, you know, you think when you like think of like somebody with a quill, you know, like a feather, they would use stuff like that. But they would also use them made out of reeds or made out of metal. Here's a in the pictures. There's a couple of uh, examples of of some of the ancient pens um, that would have been available. But you'd still you'd have to sit there and you'd have to to dip your pen in your ink um, as you were working. So it would be a very laborious process as you're copying out um, you know, whatever it is that you're writing. Let's see here. Um, and then another thing that's interesting is they even had a, a limited ability to erase what they were writing. Um, you couldn't do like a great job, you know. Obviously, it wasn't as nice as, as like our just you know pencil, lead, and eraser. Uh, but even you know writing stuff in ink, they could actually erase. And that actually is going to be important as we consider manuscripts of the Bible because there are some manuscripts of the Bible we have that actually have been erased and another text has been written on top of that. Um, but we have ways that we can then go back and find the, the text that has been erased off of the manuscript. Now, as people were writing, one thing that's interesting is there is no lowercase letters. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go back here. You see there's the Greek and maybe there we go and there's the Hebrew it's you know it's basically you just have one letter style um, you don't have the the upper and lowercase letters That's something that we don't necessarily think of but now later lowercase was invented at least for Greek I don't know if Hebrew has any upper and lowercase Pastor Rick do you know the answer to that question uh, yeah they do have upper and lowercase they do have upper and lowercase okay um, so I don't I don't know when that came into existence, but um, but for the first few centuries of um, the copying of the uh, of the New Testament in Greek, all you had was was uppercase letters. Um, some other interesting things um, is that uh, there was no punctuation. Um, at least not in the form that we think of it. They did have some marks that they would use to designate certain things, um, but there was there was very little in terms of punctuation. Um, now in Greek, um, all the words were written in a way where they run together and there's no breaks. Um, I, don't, I don't know how well you can see that, but um, but basically there's just no spaces between the words. Um, which would, if you're not used to that, that would make it very difficult um, to uh, to read something. Um, now Hebrew, on the other hand, um, they typically either had spaces between the words or would put little dots between the words. Um, so that's some some things about the way that things were written. Um, Obviously, it was a it was a very long, laborious process. Uh, now, when they began copying the texts, um, again, um, they it was you still had the same process. Uh, the printing press did not exist. Uh, does anybody know when the printing press came into existence? Fourteen hundreds. Yeah, that's right. That's in fact, I don't think there's 
I've seen lots of different dates, so I don't know that anybody knows exactly, but somewhere in the middle of the 1400s, I believe that 1455 was when the uh, the Gutenberg Bible was was completed. Um, now, there actually was a printing press of sorts that existed a little bit before that. I believe the Chinese had it, um, but it was not a movable type printing press. So it was the type of thing where you would have to like just carve out the entire plate for the page, and then it was just it was just fixed, you know. Um, whereas the movable type printing press, they had all the little letters individually, and so you could just arrange them and put them together as a plate, uh, and it made it much quicker and easier um, for people to to put things together um, so that they could print off large quantities of things. And that really made a huge difference at the time that that happened. Um, but prior to that, if you wanted a copy of, of anything, of any book, the only way to get it was to go through the laborious process of copying it out by hand, letter by letter. Um, now, they did have kind of a shortcut to mass-produced books. There was a way that they could use one copy and make multiple copies of that. Um, and what they would do is they would sit in a scriptorium, it's just a room for copying books, and you would have one person who would get up front and they would read the text. And then everybody else would just start trying to write it out based on what they heard. Now that sometimes would cause certain issues if you know if words sound the same or stuff like that. Sometimes that could cause problems. Uh, but that was that was the closest they had to mass producing books. Um, and again, there was there was all the limitations of of like the materials you could get. Uh, you know, the, the parchment was very expensive. Papyrus was not so expensive. It was a lot cheaper to make. Um, so you could you could use that instead. But as you see, like, I mean, the parchment was fairly smooth. Um, I think you could probably have better examples of parchment than what I have. Um, and so you could get some, some pretty smooth parchment. But as you can see, the papyrus is not the smoothest writing. So if you imagine you're, like, trying to write with a, a sharp, uh, you know, pen... That you know that you've you've uh, you know made out of out of metal or 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 reed, and you're you know you're going across these lines from the fibers of the papyrus. It can be very difficult to actually get your letters to look right. Um, and so we have examples of, of where it's kind of difficult to to deal with that as people are copying the Bible. Um, so all sorts of difficulties existed, plus uh, the literacy rates uh, were very low at this period of time. Um, now presumably amongst uh, the Jews, literacy rates were, were probably a lot higher than they were in other um, cultures, just because the Jews were so focused on the Bible. They were so focused on, on reading a book. And so it was a much more literate society. Uh, but just, you know, as Christianity spread and the New Testament needed to be copied, um, lots of the people that were converting to Christianity would not have been literate. So it's only a small percentage of the population who can even do the copying. Um, so all sorts of difficulties presented themselves. Now, as they began um, copying, here, let's just go down here, so we're... Um, just kind of get a little introduction here into the copying, um, the first of our historical uh, points here. Um, as they were doing the copying, um, they were very concerned about getting the Word of God out to the people of God, um, getting it spread far and wide. Um, in fact, I, I think probably a lot of copying happened even just like right at the very beginning, if you think of the book of Galatians. Um, does anybody know anything about who that was written to? Mm -hmm. 
the church in Galatia. Okay. Say, say that again. I, the church in Galatia. Okay. That's actually not quite correct. It's actually the churches of Galatia. Okay. Because Galatia was a region. It wasn't a individual city or town. So, but, but yeah. So that that's that's actually when Paul wrote that letter, he wasn't writing it to a single church. Um, he was actually writing it to a region that would have had multiple churches. Now, I suppose it's possible that he wrote one copy and then expected them to just pass it around, but I think it's a lot more likely that, like, right from the get-go, he got several copies so that he could send them to all the different churches right there. So, um, And just, like, as Christianity spread, it was just, like, people needed copies of these New Testament documents. And so they just got copied and copied and copied and spread far and wide. Um, and that's one of the things that as we start looking at the fact that, yes, when they were copying, they would make mistakes in their copying. But the thing is they made so many copies and they were spread so far and wide that um, as we look at these and we compare them, we can look at the differences between the manuscripts and we can do a really good job of reconstructing what the actual text was. As we begin to look at the different uh, mistakes that they made, uh, you will be able to see very clearly, it's like, oh, they made that mistake because of this. It's pretty clear um, in, I mean, not in every instance, but in a lot of instances, it's just obvious why they made the mistake that they did. And so hopefully that will be uh, helpful as we look at that. That you'll get to see, it's like, it's, it's pretty clear the types of mistakes that people make. Um, have any of you ever tried to copy something by hand? Yeah, a couple people there. Um, it's really hard to do it without making a mistake, especially when it's a long document. Now, we're going to get into this in a lot more detail in the coming weeks. Uh, but one time when I when I taught through this material, um, I had just a group of junior high kids, and I wanted to try an experiment because I'd read that like professors at, at colleges had done this type of experiment, um, and I just wanted to try it for myself. And so what I did was I provided them with something to copy. It was out of a book, um, and I basically gave uh, I gave them three different, um, you know, I don't know, they were like two-page sections, I think. So it was two pages to this person, two pages to that person, two pages to that person. And uh, and they would copy them uh, by hand, and then the next week they would bring them in, and their copy would go to somebody who hadn't had those two pages. And then they had to copy the copy. And then... You know, and then the third week you, they would get the final section. So everybody would, everybody would go through it where they would get to see all three sections of the book that we were looking at. But you know, only one of them they would see the original. The other two they would be getting either a copy or a copy of a copy. Um, at first, I, if I remember right, there was six. I I actually had to include myself to have the right number of people. So I think there was, I think there were six of us at first, and then. I think in the third iteration, we got uh, like three more people joined the class, and they were they were willing to, to jump in, and so we wound up uh, with three groups of people copying, uh, so you know nine total people copying, and then I went through the laborious task afterwards of going through all of those handwritten copies and finding all of the differences, and you know making a you know a list of like here's the differences. Um, and it was a lot of fun because the, you know they got to, to laugh and enjoy all the little mistakes that they made as they were copying. And they're the exact same types of mistakes that we're going to see that they made um, when you know when people were copying the Bible. They're just mistakes that people make when they copy. Very common stuff. Um, and it should come as no surprise if you've ever studied this this topic that. Um, at the end of it, we were able to like look at all the differences, and we were able to figure out basically exactly what the original text said. I think there was like one or two places. I'll, I'll have the specifics uh, at a later class, but there was like one or two places where there was there was a question about what the original said, but like none of it actually ever made any difference. You could still just read the whole thing 
out of that we reconstructed, and it still says the same thing that it did in the original. So it was a fun little experiment. I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in anything like that. I've been tempted to do it again, but it's hard to get people to commit to, oh, yeah, you're going to have to go home and handwrite this thing out uh, for the next three weeks. But anyway, that is, in a nutshell, what we do with, in particular, the New Testament. There's a, there is a difference between kind of the textual history of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is just a lot older, and we just we don't have as much information, um, but we do have a lot of indication that they were very careful in copying the text. Um, and in the New Testament, we have indication that they were less careful in copying the text. There was just less educated people who were involved in copying the text, but were still able to, with confidence, get back to what the Bible originally said. Um, I'm assuming that most of you have noticed footnotes in your Bible, um, and frequently those footnotes will say something about different manuscripts reading one way or another. Um, those are just the instances of places where there's some doubt about what the original actually said. Um, and so in spite of what many atheists like to think, Christians aren't trying to hide anything. They're not trying to hide the fact that there is some question about some places in the Bible. But um, our Bibles, our English Bibles, are presented in such a way that whenever there's any serious question about what the original said, we're going we're gonna to have a footnote that's going to point that out to us. Ben, you have something? Well, and going back to kind of what you, kind of what you said already, with those differences when you look at them, in general, there's not, it doesn't really change the meaning too much mm-hmm. of the text. And when you look at the history of interpretation of the Bible, too, mm-hmm. the church has already dealt with some of the, the difficulties with some, like, hey, this. This uh, maybe this uh, this uh, difference over here leaves some question has some questions that are something like that. The church has already answered that and looked at those objections for centuries, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and with either one, mm-hmm. whichever copy of the text you go with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and going to say, from the earliest times, you have writings of Christians. Who recognized that like there were there were mistakes in the copying, and one thing is like that can throw us because of the age that we live in. We live in an age where somebody writes a book on a word processor, and that digital file is then sent over to the printer, and it's next to impossible for the printer to you know screw that up somehow. And so what the what the author wrote is what's going to be in the printed book. And then if they, you know, do another printing later, it's still going to be exactly the same thing, word for word. And that's just what we're used to. But we have to understand that back at this time, everybody was used to the fact that you're going to have copyist errors, and that didn't throw anybody. Nobody was ever alarmed by the fact that, oh, there are copyist errors. Now, they might be alarmed like if it's like, man, there's a lot of copyist errors in this particular book. Um, but they were very used to that, and they were very used to comparing different copies of a book um, just because they knew that that was an issue. And uh, although we don't have a historical record of this, I'm sure that the early Christians spent a lot of time comparing and saying, okay, do we still have a copy of, of John's original gospel? You know, where is that located at? Well, let's go make some comparisons. I'm sure they did a ton of that so that, you know, as long as the original survived, they had plenty of opportunity uh, for a long period of time. I mean, travel obviously was a lot more difficult in those days, but they still, they had a lot of opportunity to go and make comparisons and do their best to keep errors from creeping into the text, even though, to some degree, errors creeping into the text is something that's unavoidable. Um, but the one thing that you'll see, and we're gonna again, we're gonna discuss this in more detail, is that people who want to attack the Bible, they will try to blow this up as some really bad thing, and it's just like, well, it just completely destroys inerrancy. You just can't have any idea what the Bible actually originally said, and that's just not the case. And 
I don't really want to sound like I'm just saying, just trust me, that's not the case. We, you know, we can trust the Bible. Um, but obviously we're out of time, so we can't go into any more detail. But if you keep coming back, we're going to look at these things in detail and hopefully be able to, to really show you that we don't have any reason to have any real doubts about uh, whether we actually have the words of Scripture. Any final thoughts or comments? I do. I think I misspoke earlier. Did you ask this? Greek or Hebrew have lowercase letters? Hebrew. Hebrew does not. Okay. Greek does. I mean, yes. Greek was all capitalized, mm-hmm. in the, yeah. and later on it had yeah. lowercase. Yeah. I think I. Yeah, I missed. Okay. No, that's fine. That was that's that was the one that I wasn't sure about. Yeah, yeah. Hebrew, no, Hebrew, so. Hebrew just has uppercase. Okay. All right. That's so. I, I knew that like at the time that it was just it was just uppercase, but I didn't know yeah. if they ever developed a lowercase. But um, but Greek. So okay. So Hebrew yeah. did not have that, but but Greek did eventually develop a lowercase. Yes. Um, and so that was helpful at the time, but obviously in the originals you don't have that. So all right. Well, let's uh, let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just we thank you for your word, and God, we do praise you that you have preserved your word throughout history, uh, that we have it, that we can trust it, uh, and God, that it is uh, that it is powerful, it is living and active. Um, God, it will transform us, and God, as we um, just continue to worship you this morning, as we as we go into our worship service and we sing and we pray and we confess and we hear your word preached. Lord, I just pray that we would um, just praise you more and more, God, that by your word you would sanctify us, form us to the image of Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.